Hello, and welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where you too can experience the croakiness of evidence-based child health when one's had an upper respiratory tract infection. But enough about me. What do we do in this podcast? Well, we do all sorts of things, but basically we talk about the practice of evidence-based medicine as it applies to child health. There's a little bit of a conversational part or a philosophical part where we think about some aspect of doing it and then we move on to a couple of cases. These are cases that have been generated by real people out on the wards and clinics, slightly anonymized to take away any of the rough edges, then used to really dive into the evidence, to go away, to search. What can we find that's going to give the best evidence to answer this question? That evidence is then appraised, it's weighed for its strengths and its benefits, and it's brought together in a beautiful synthetic conclusion, the clinical bottom lines. What can you do here? How can you take this forwards as a practicing clinician? So that as academics, we might always want to finish with, but more research is needed. As clinicians, we need to know something has to be done or or not done, but a decision has to be made. And that's where Archimedes excels, is always making a decision. Last month, for those who are taking account of these things, we did stray from the prescription pad into the realm of craft interventions, things like surgery, physiotherapy or or other procedural work. We considered how components could be described and then assessed and thought of a, a developmental process where new things went through further phases of testing and refinement. What if we go even further away from the reach of the correcting green pen of pharmacy and ask questions of meaning and involvement? What does it feel like to be the parent of a child who has had their first febrile seizure? What were the things that made end-of-life care for the teenager that has died more or less bearable? How did the way that we, as clinicians, do things, not the things that we did, but how we did them, how did that make a difference? To answer these questions, which are incredibly important in the practice of medicine, we need to embrace a different approach to research. We can still be methodical. We can still ask, how was this study undertaken? How was the information gathered? How was it considered, appraised for its value and brought together and summarised? We can debate the utility of the report as it's presented to us and the meaning of its contents for our particular patients within our particular population. All of these steps can be replicated within the areas of qualitative research, not just quantitative research. But we need to use different tools to do that assessment with. We shouldn't consider so much the size of a study, but its informational power used to be called saturation. Not precision in a mathematical way, but robustness and credibility. How likely is it that this is going to be true beyond the realms of can you give me the confidence interval on that? Now, We have written about this on the blog, and you'll be able to chase off the list there on the information and and have a read about it and have a read of some of the things that have been put up there. When you start thinking, yeah, 
We could actually get answers this way. Be prepared to open your mind and think, but can we get quality answers this way as well? Now, our first clinical question comes from a whole bunch of people at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. The first author is Katie Valentine and the senior author is Eleanor Malloy. The question is about communicating a neonatal diagnosis of Down syndrome to parents that weren't expecting it. The scenario is that as a paediatric registrar, you're called to the delivery suite by a midwife who's delivered a baby with characteristic facial features suggestive of Down syndrome. And the diagnosis of Downs was noted postnatally. The registrar is wondering, what's the evidence behind this? How do I know how to impart this information most successfully? A structured clinical question was got together by this group of people in a postnatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, which is the population, which specific aspects of communication should be implemented, the intervention, and compared that to other methods of communication in order to provide better support and a better experience for the families. They went away and they searched medical databases for uh, various pieces of literature regarding this, screened 333 different abstracts to come down to stuff that was most useful to tell us about this. They then went away and did hand searching of extra things as well to really get as much as they could. And what did they get in the end? Well, they ended up with a number of different studies done in a number of different ways. One of them was a questionnaire-based study of nearly a thousand people who were members of a Down syndrome parents' organisation. Some of them were actually proper interview studies with 43 mothers, with 35 with a postnatal diagnosis, or 18 families where their child had been diagnosed with Down syndrome. So different ways of getting at the answer. They asked slightly different questions, as you would expect, but the key elements of it were what were the things that made it better? How was it that giving that information was felt to be useful and not useful? The evidence there is varied and it is all based around retrospective rememberings of those who took part in these conversations. However, people who've done this have worked incredibly hard to get as broad a possible representation and understand fully what's being suggested through these different studies. The group have come up with a series of sort of key aspects, and they won't probably be surprising to most listeners, but they've emerged from the research that was done. The idea is that it should be given in an empathetic and sensitive way in a private room as quickly as is reasonably possible and allowing information with questions to emerge when possible. Both parents should be present to hear the news at the same time, and that will require coordination. And the infant, if the parents wish, should also be present and held by the caregivers. It was reasonable and indeed wanted to refer to their child by name. The information should be full, balanced and backed up with printed or other sorts of written material that could be referred to. There should be a congratulation and not an apology for the diagnosis. And part of that information that goes on should include support from other networks, including other parents. 
Now, we'd normally have some sort of grade of recommendation, which is a, a very quantitative framework about the certainty we have around this and how much we think it is likely to fall over with future research. You could attempt to do that with qualitative research, but to be honest, there isn't the safety in the certainty about what is likely to be right or wrong. It's not quite the same thing. And so this, unlike nearly every other Archimedes, does not have a grade of recommendation associated with its bottom lines. You can go the other way on the neonatal unit as well and go for something that really isn't very qualitative at all, such as Matthew McGovern, Neelam Gupta and Chiathra Pisanda did in the neonatal unit at Guys and Thomas's down the Evelina at London. They had a situation of a 24 plus 2 weeker who'd been on the ward round now at 30 weeks gestation, still on invasive ventricular support, still getting pneumonias, last one four days ago. For the past 24 hours it's been getting worse with poor oxygenation and the echo is normal, but it looks like he's got sort of complete loss of volume as things have been stuck and yucky down there. Now, Registrar on remembers previously when somebody had squirted some DNAs, endocritical deoxyribonuclease down, in order to try and break down the stuff in some semi-magical way. And you wonder, what was that magic? Was that luck? Was there actually anything about the use of DNAs? So they went away and searched the literature as well, identified nine separate studies. None of them were uh, found in the Cochrane Library, but they were found in the primary literature. And they came out with a number of different studies, with a bunch of them being used in a safety analysis, which you can find linked off the website, where people have looked to see what are the adverse effects in it. And two, just two, that were related to the value of it in terms of its efficacy. As you will not be surprised to hear, there are no large randomised controls in this area. But there is a prospective cohort of 22 infants with this situation, 12 of them being preterm, and another one which was a relatively well put together retrospective cohort of a further 21 infants, 18 of them being preterm, looking at this. The things that they've primarily looked at in terms of their outcomes are improvements in x-ray and also improvements in the oxygenation, respiratory rate and clinical features. Both of these support the idea that in this situation, squirting down some DNAs to break up the cruddy respiratory secretions that are clogging everything up and causing a problem is actually quite beneficial. And it's relatively safe. So their clinical bottom line was that in the situation of children, preterm neonates in particular, with recurrent or refractory atelectasis, the short-term use of DNAs may improve clinical outcomes. Now, that's a, a relatively weak recommendation because of the quality of the evidence underlying it. The safety of this, which is a little better because people have collected safety data on it more, is appears pretty good. And then they even come up with a reasonable dose based on what they could extract from the literature, what's been done and a three-day course of somewhere between 1.25 or 2.5 milligrams nebulized twice a day with a rescue dose squirted down the tube directly seemed to be the one that was most often employed. And 
in the light of no decent comparative data, going with the one that's been most often used seems to be the most sensible option. So, that's this month's, a rather different and more wide-ranging perhaps thing than we would normally see, but Archimedes is full of this. It is the whole of clinical life brought to you via the medium of talking. The talking can sometimes be an interview, and if you want to get in on the Archimedes, follow the instructions to authors carefully, contact us with your proposed topic, and if you're up for an interview at the point of you receiving that, yes, we are going to publish your paper. Do get back in touch, and you can do the talking instead of me. Until next month, have a lovely time, and I hope everyone stays well.